0: How y'all doing this morning? Yeah. <laughs> Amen to that. <laughs> well, if you guys don't know me, or for those of you who don't know me, my name is Denara Winborn. Um, I've been going here for about a year now. I'm an intern uh, under the care of our presbytery um, on a path to ordination, Lord <laughs> willing. Uh, so with that, we can uh, open up. Um, if we can remain standing for the reading of God's word, we'll be in John chapter 1, the gospel of John chapter 1. Just let me know when you're there, we and we can dive in. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Let us pray. Lord, we just uh, thank you for this morning. Um, After celebrating the birth of your son, Lord, we just give you thanksgiving and, and, and gratitude for your son, Jesus. Lord, we ask that you just uh, let your word be blessed today, Lord. We ask that you be glorified, that Christ be magnified in our hearts and through the word that's spoken, Lord God. We pray that he made much of, Lord. And we just thank you for the song that was sung, knowing your, your arms are wide open, O oh Lord. And you draw us to come, Lord God. Let your word be blessed. Let the congregation be blessed under the hearing of your word, Lord. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. (laughs) So, (laughs) the question is, what is the gospel? What is the gospel? Or what would you consider to be the gospel? Right on the surface, it seems like a a simple question, right? We know that Jesus died, that he was buried, that he rose again. But then when we start probing and we we think about it, we understand that it's not just about his death. It's not just about his resurrection. And I know it might sound weird, but once we start probing with even more questions, we'll understand why I say that. Because in our culture, right, we say that's just the tip of the iceberg when we know the, a small part of a bigger problem. And sometimes I fear that's how we are with the gospel. We, we see a small part of a bigger issue, of a bigger plan, right? Most of the iceberg is underwater. M- most of it is unseen. And so applying that to the gospel, when we ask those questions, we understand what's going on. We understand that it's deeper. When I say it's not just about his death, it's not just about his resurrection. Because again, the question is, why is his death significant? Why is his resurrection significant? And then when we start to ask those questions, we start to understand it's about who he is. It's about Jesus. If he wasn't significant, then his death wouldn't be. If he wasn't significant, then his resurrection wouldn't be. So it's his person that gives meaning to these things. It's his person that gives meaning to all that he said, all that he did. We listen to Jesus' words. We look at his works because of who he is. He's telling us something. And so as we ponder that, we want to think that we can't define who Jesus is. The culture can't define who Jesus is. We can't define what we want the gospel to be. The culture can't define what the gospel is. Only the scriptures can define who Jesus is. Only the scriptures can define what the gospel is. And so in our text, we see John doing just that, right, as he addressed the Jews and as he addressed the Greeks, as he sent a knife right through both cultures by taking something from their culture and giving significance to it. He said, in the beginning was the Word. Mm-hmm. And then he drops down in 14 and says, and the Word became flesh. Yeah. But just as we asked in the beginning all these questions, right, we still have to ask a question here. Why is that significant? Why is that important to say the Word became flesh mm-hmm. after expounding on a Word for 13 verses? But to understand the significance of that, to understand the depths of that, just like I said with the iceberg, we only see in the tip of it. But we got to go deeper to see the bigger picture, to really understand what's going on here, to understand what John is saying. And so the next question is what is the problem? Why did he have to become flesh? If I ask, what is man's biggest problem, what will we say? Is man's biggest problem poverty? Is it a lack of peace? Is it racism? Is it violence? Is it discord? What's man's biggest problem? And the Bible clearly tells us, it explicitly tells us, our biggest problem is alienation from God. That is, we are separated from God. All the cause of the discord, all the cause of the violence, all the cause of these things and the suffering in the world is because we separated from God. Even if we go into Genesis chapter 3, we see that. God gave Adam a command not to eat from the tree. But before that, it was harmony. It, It was unity. It was peace. It was joy. They enjoyed the presence of the Lord. But as soon as he ate from the tree, as soon as sin entered in, then here comes the racism. Here comes the discord. Here comes the suffering. Soon as sin entered in. And so we must understand that because that's vital. It's it's vital for us to understand the text. It's vital for us to understand the gospel because the gospel is good news, Right? Jesus said he came to save the sinners. He didn't come to save those who are not sick. If if you have two people going to the same doctor and they get the same news, that they are perfectly healthy, what determines what's good news for each person? What determines what's good news for each person? If a person is healthy, is it good news to them? When a doctor say, hey, you fine, you healthy, there's nothing wrong with you. But if somebody been struggling all their life with sicknesses and, and had bad health in and out of the doctor, like the woman with the issue of blood, spending all her money, ex- exhausting all her avenues, and to hear that, that would be good news. Yeah, yeah. And so the difference is them knowing they condition, them understanding they condition, them seeing they condition. Yeah. And so I say those things so that we may see our condition, the condition. Greatest issue is our separation from God. And when we understand that, we cannot save ourselves. Yeah, yeah. We're absolutely helpless. we absolutely hopeless. And so as we ponder those things, the next question becomes, can we be reconciled to God? Can we be reunited back with God? That's the question. And then the next question is, if we can, how? How can we be reconciled to God? And so the answer to the first one is, yes, we can be reconciled to God. And the answer to the second one <laughs> is in verse 14. And the word became flesh. The word became flesh. That's the significance of what we say saying. the word became flesh. But then we have to ask, well, what is the word? The word is God. We see in verse 1, in the beginning was the Word. And so we see He was in the beginning. The only one that was in the beginning was God, was God. Only God is eternal, right? This echoed the words in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created. Then it says, and the Word was with God. So that's showing that the Word is distinct, right? We have a triune God, Father, so, excuse me, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's saying in the beginning, or excuse me, and the Word was God, right? So that's an explicit declaration that He is divine. He is God. He was in the beginning with God. That is, He was in relationship with God. He was face to face with God. He had an intimacy with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made, so he's the creator. Only God is creator. Yeah. In him was life. Only God has life in him. And his life was the light of men. And so what I'm trying to emphasize is the same thing John is emphasizing is, is the divine nature of the word, that he is God. And again, it has a, a, a effects for the questions that we're asking, right? Because the question is, can we be reconciled to God? The answer is yes. And then the next question was, well, how? And I said, because the Word became flesh. And so as we see the Word is divine, we want to understand that the Savior couldn't just be God. Think about that. The Savior couldn't just be God. And the Savior couldn't just be human. And I say that because it brings us to our first point, which is what I've been expounding on, that that Jesus, Jesus is the Savior of the gospel. The Savior of the gospel. The Word became flesh. And I say that the, the Savior couldn't just be God because John says that God is spirit. God is spirit. He's an entirely different nature than we are. It was a human that sinned, and it would be a human that have to die. And even if we stretch it further, we know God cannot be tempted according to James 1 and 13. We know that God cannot die according to Scripture. So this is why I say the Savior couldn't just be God. So think about those things. Saying this is the same God I'm saying who prophesied that he was the only Redeemer, that he was the only Savior aside from him, there was none. And it's a point in why I'm saying all this. But on the flip side, the Savior couldn't just be human. He wouldn't be able to overcome temptation as we seen with Adam. Even if he somehow did, his death wouldn't be sufficient. He wouldn't have a righteousness that's sufficient. If you will, turn with me to Psalms uh, 49, and we get an example from Scripture. Psalms 49. And this is David crying out to the Lord, saying, whom shall I fear in a time of trouble? But in the process of praying, he says, truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice. So not only can you not ransom somebody with money, but you can't even ransom them with your own life. Isaiah 64 and 6, God said, all our righteousness is filthy rags before him. Then he says in verse 9 that he should live on forever and never see the pit. So a human being couldn't give eternal life. And so again, I'm saying all these things for a point because I want us to understand the situation. I want us to understand the circumstance our alienation from God. That God alone couldn't save us. Mm-hmm. That a human alone couldn't save us. But then if we drop down to verse 15, it said, but God will ransom, from my, ransom my soul from the power of Sheol. So what does God mean when he say he will ransom my soul? What does it mean when he says he is the redeemer? What does it mean when he says I am the only savior? Yet as a spirit, he can't save us. And so we see the significance once again in John 14. And I pray that it register because this is vital for the gospel. Like we were absolutely hopeless. The only way for us to be saved was if God himself became a man. That's the point. That's the point. Think about that. Think about how valuable that makes the gospel. While Paul said, I'm making my ambition to preach, and not only that, but he made his his ambition to defend the gospel. He told the Galatians that that let any man be accursed if he preach any other gospel because there's no other hope for the world. That was the only hope. That's why Jesus claims exclusivity. That's why he said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, because no one else is God and man. That's the solution, that the Word became flesh. Mm -hmm. And so we've seen that the Word is truly God, right? These natures wasn't mixed. They wasn't confused. That's why we say 100% God. All the divine things that make up God, He kept. But then He took up on the human nature. It wasn't something like a human nature. It wasn't something that was a a phantom or anything like that. Jesus was 100% human. He possessed a body and he possessed a soul, which means he had a mind and emotions and a will. That's why the scriptures say Jesus grew in stature. He grew in wisdom. He had to learn because he had a human soul. But now these two natures are united in one person. And I'm going to read from Hebrews chapter 2 to show that the Savior had to be human. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14, Since the, therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who had power of death, that is the devil. And all those who, though fear of de- or excuse me through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery, For surely it is not angels that he helped, because they have a different nature. But he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. In every respect. So this omnipotent God, this eternal God, this this God who was everywhere once, who was all-powerful, now is clothed in human weakness. John specifically used the word flesh for a reason. Flesh signifies weakness. The one who was infinitely high now became infinitely low. And then the beauty of God when it says, so he can become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So now we see Jesus as the solution to the problem. Because he's human, he can be tempted, but because he's God, he overcomes. Because he's human, he's born of a woman, born under the law, he can earn an obedience that we need, but because he's God, he can earn the God-righteousness that we need. Because he's human, he can die, but because he's God, he can raise himself up. Do y'all see this? This is the dilemma. That's why I said just God alone couldn't save us, and then just a human alone couldn't save us. But the two had to become one to solve the dilemma. And even as a human, he couldn't survive the wrath of God. Only God can take the wrath of God and survive. Think about that. Only God can take the wrath of God and survive. What Jesus paid for in three hours on the cross, it would take us an eternity to pay for. And as we continue in the text, that's what John is talking about. All the things I've been telling you, that's what John is talking about when he says, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory is the only son from the Father. That's the glory of Christ is no one else could save us, but God himself coming in the flesh. That's what he said when we beheld his glory, the glory of the only son, not necessarily numerically, but better translated, uh, the one-of-a-kind son of God, the unique son of God. That's the beauty. That's the glory. That's our fourth point, Jesus, the Savior of the gospel, the God-man, who came to do what we couldn't do. But as we continue in the text, we what should this show us? What, what's the practical implications of this? Not just rightly understanding the gospel. Because I, obviously that's ultimate. But what's the other practical aspect? Is that it should show us the severity of sin. That God is not going to look the other way. God is not going to sweep it under the rug. God is not indifferent to sin. For him himself to come in human flesh to pay the penalty for us should show us how severe sin is. But then as the song said, it also shows us his heart because his arms is wide open through Jesus Christ, which leads us to our second point that Jesus is the substance of the gospel. He didn't come with hatred. He didn't come with vengeance. He didn't come with antagonism or anything like that. It said he came in grace and truth full of grace and truth. Jesus whole life is a manifestation of God's grace and his truth. Jesus soul, his mind, his emotions and his will was full of grace and truth. His all those things. We see it in the gospels. The man who had leprosy, he said, "Jesus, if you are willing, you can heal me." What did Jesus say? "I'm willing." How many times do we hear Jesus had compassion? Jesus was moved in his spirit. Every word, every work was a truth of God. It was was a grace of God. All his words is only grace and truth. All his works is only grace and truth. But then John goes on to say, for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace or grace in place of grace or as the niv translated blessing on top of blessing you know it's the difference between having a thirst and it being quenched with a water bottle versus a supply big as the ocean I'm sure if we all think about the gospel, see the problem, see the solution, that we would see the grace of God in our life. Even preparing a sermon, I couldn't help but think about how God's grace was in my life. Coming up in a non-Christian home, I blasphemed Jesus. I hated Jesus. I literally was an apostle Paul and did everything I could to, to fight against Christians because I thought it was the white man religion. That's what I was taught. That's not the truth. Stay far from it. But here's God's grace. Not that he just saved me, but I wasn't even looking for him. I wasn't looking for him. I didn't want him. But he saved me. Then I think about Paul's life as an example of God's grace. This man murdered Christians, murdered them. And just like me, he wasn't looking for God on the road to Damascus to continue to do the Lord's work. But Jesus saved him. That's grace. But the fullness of grace, the abundance of grace is what he did after that turning Paul into one of the greatest apostles, turning Paul into one of the probably greatest theologians and greatest Christians we we know. Wrote two-thirds of the New Testament. That's abundant grace. If you ever doubt God's grace, look at Paul's life. And Paul himself would tell you, He said, I'm not greater than all these other apostles. I might have worked harder than them. I might go in the paint harder than them, right? But he said, it's not me. It's the grace of God in me. Of his fullness, we all have received grace on top of grace, blessing in place of blessing. And even as I've been telling you, the biggest issue with man is, is the alienation from God and that it is a solution and that Jesus is the solution. That's God's grace. He didn't have to save anybody. But that he will come himself to save us is manifestation of his grace. It's manifestation of his grace. And even as John goes on, he said, for the law was given through Moses and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so even if we apply the first principle like we did in the the first point, right? the, The Savior couldn't just be God. The Savior just couldn't be human. We see the same thing here. If it was just God himself giving us grace, then what we have is law, if that makes sense. We just have shadows and types. If it was a human, all of us know, (laughs) who marry and have children, that we don't have fullness of grace. (laughs) We don't have fullness of grace, you know. But to see God and man combined in one person, we have one that can sympathize with us yet one who has unlimited grace. Yet one who has unlimited grace. And I say that because even as he said the law was given through Moses, we're seeing God's grace in shadows and types. And they say the law was given to Moses, which means it's something external. God gave it to Moses, then Moses gave it to the people. But what's the difference when Jesus came? Jesus came full of grace. And not say grace was given to him, but he came full of grace. And so what I'm trying to point out, what I'm trying to say is Jesus is the grace of God. Jesus is the truth of God. It wasn't something that was given to him. To have Jesus is to have grace. To have Jesus is to have truth. Jesus is the substance. The law was just shadows and types. Jesus is the substance. For example... In the Old Testament, they had the the bread, the table of bread. They had to bring out fresh bread every single day, right? But that was something that was perishable. But then Jesus comes and said, what? I am the bread. Your fathers ate manna. They had bread in the, uh, the tabernacle, but Jesus comes and said, I am the bread. The true bread that feeds us spiritually. And we can continue with all the analogies, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to do that. Because I'm sure y'all get the point. Just as they had the light, the menorah in the past, Jesus comes as the light. So we see Jesus as the Savior of the gospel, the God-man. We see Jesus as the substance of the gospel grace and truth. And as John brings us to our last point, Jesus is the sum of the gospel. No one has ever seen God. Now this is probably one of the most powerful prologues. And after all the substance, after all the meat that John has been giving us, He starts the conclusion with, no man has seen God. Think about that. No one has seen God. Moses, probably one of the most prominent figures, couldn't see God. He said, let me see your glory, Lord. And God said, no. You can't see me and live, for no man can see me and live. So what John is showing us is this is the apex. This this is the the, the highest point of the prologue. After all these things he's been saying, it really leads up to this point. Jesus is the sum of the gospel, emphasizing once again before he hit us with the truth that no man can see God. But he goes on to say, the only God who is at the Father's side has made him known. Think about that, saints. Think about that. I just said that We saw in the past God's grace in shadows and types. It was the same way. We saw God in shadows and types. They saw him as a pillar of fire. They saw him as a cloud. They saw him through the tabernacle. They saw him through the priesthood. They saw him through the, king, the monarchy. They saw him through the sacrifices. But those were just pictures but then Hebrews 1 says, God has spoken to us through the prophets and in various manners, which I just named. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. Do that hit y'all? Right, because we, we can communicate with dogs, right? We can train a dog. You know, we can snap our fingers, hiss at the dog, and, and do all these things of, of, of communicating with the dog. But how can we fully communicate with the dog? And the only way to do that is to become a dog. A dog don't talk to a bird. A bird don't talk to a cat. It sounds funny, you know what I mean? Because, I mean, in essence it is. But what I'm trying to get you to understand is the grace of God for him himself to desire to be known. To come as one of us. It's no clearer way for God to speak than come as a human. Full of grace and truth. To see Jesus is to see God. When John just told us no man can see God, if that's not grace, I don't know what is. If that don't move you, I don't know what moves you. Because John said in seventeen three, to know God is to be saved. Yeah. He specifically said it like this. I have come that they may have eternal life. But what is eternal life? To know you, the only true God, and your son, Jesus Christ, who you have sent. And so, eternal life is, is, is not just the duration of life, living forever, but it's also the quality of life, right? It's the difference between your life being a flickering candle and your life being a bonfire, Jesus said in, in chapter 10, verse 10, the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's a numerical abundance. Mm-hmm. It, it's a surplus. It's over in the bound. It's it's more than we need. And just as I said in the beginning, racism. Uh, Violence and, and, and poverty, all these things are, are not the core issue. Our core issue is our separation from God. Because of that, we don't have joy. Because of that, we don't have peace. Because of that, we are selfish. But Jesus said, that's the enemy. I came that you may have life and have it more abundantly. And to see God is to be saved, because when you see God, you have eternal life. You have true joy. You have true peace. You have true contentment, just as Adam and Eve had before they ate from the fruit thinking it was something that can satisfy them other than God. They wrecked it, and Jesus came to fix it. That's the good news. That's the good news. It's a person. It's a person. So as I close, we, we see Jesus is the Savior of the gospel. Jesus is the substance of the gospel. He's the sum of the gospel. Just preach the gospel. If we don't, what hope is it for the world? Yeah. If we take away the gospel, we don't preach the gospel, it's no hope. Man can't fix the broken world. This is why, again, Jesus claims to be exclusive. We can't throw Jesus in the same pot as Buddha or Confucius or Muhammad or he's just a good person or he's just a good moral example and all these other things. Jesus is absolutely something different. He's not saying that because he's on some power trip. He's saying it because it's truth. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the light that if any man follow me, he would not walk in darkness. We've seen in the beginning of the text that in him was life. And this life was the light of man. He gave it to everybody. God's truth is not restricted to one people. And we can't just apply the gospel to any and everything in our culture to say this is a gospel issue or that is a gospel issue. What do that mean? The gospel is a person. The gospel is a person. And so I pray that if your faith is in Jesus, I pray that, you know, you will really think on the things that that have been said, that you will really think on the text and the impact of what John said when the word became flesh, that the word was full of grace and truth, that the word has made God known. That you will reflect on Jesus, meditate with Jesus, fellowship with Jesus, know him more and more. Just as Paul said in 2 Corinthians, the more we behold him, the more we are transformed by his glory. Think of God's grace. For us to be in union with Christ Jesus, to be transformed into the same glory, to be transformed into the very image of Christ Jesus. And then if you don't know Jesus, you heard what the biggest issue was, your alienation from God. But you also heard that it was a solution, that Jesus is a solution. Now, I challenge you to put your faith in Christ, because the the same God who is gracious, right, when we say he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, is the same one that said Whoever does not believe in me is condemned already. The grace is that Jesus didn't come to condemn. But the truth is you are already condemned unless you put your faith in Christ Jesus. And this same one who died is the same one who rose up. And for the Christian, his resurrection is assurance of your salvation. But if you don't know Christ, his resurrection is proof that God will judge the world by this this one man who was raised from the dead Jesus the savior of the gospel the substance of the gospel and the sum of the gospel let us pray (laughs) Lord we thank you oh God for your only begotten son Lord It's, it's nothing left for heaven to give you gave the greatest gift oh Lord help us help us to appreciate it help us to be thankful help us to be grateful oh Lord We know there's no other way to be saved, O Lord, and you yourself came down clothed in human weakness to save us, O Lord. You didn't just die for our sins, but you rose up for our justification. And again, as the song says, come to the altar, Lord. Your your arms are wide open, and Jesus is your arms, O Lord. And I just praise you, O Lord, and I thank you. And we ask all these things in Jesus' holy name. Amen.